The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Mr. Gabriel Scarlett. He is the 73rd College Photographer of the Year. He was recognized at the Picture of the Year Awards administered by the University of Missouri's School of Journalism. Gabriel Scarlett is a student at Western Kentucky University where he studies photojournalism, Arabic, and emergency medicine, and he plans to graduate in December of 2019. I should let our listeners know that the College Photographer of the Year competition offers student photographers opportunities to compare their work with that of their peers from colleges and universities from around the world. And student photographers from 50 colleges and universities submit more than 7,000 images for judging by distinguished working professionals. So it is a big deal to win this award. In his bio, Gabriel Scarlett says, I hope to advocate through my storytelling, and his work has thus far examined social issues within the United States with special interest in stories of immigration, environmental racism, and economic divide, which is just up my alley. So welcome, Gabriel. It's great to have you. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, in the presentation that you gave in Columbia, Missouri, at the university, you shared your work on many of the projects that you've been involved with, and several of them, of course, rose to the top for me because they intersected with my work with food, health, and agriculture, and absolutely environmental and social justice. But you went to the Navajo Nation, and you discovered that we have a population of Native Americans who have been poisoned by uranium mining. I had no idea. I went to the website of the Environmental Protection Agency, and I learned just how many abandoned mines there are. The EPA's estimates are probably small in comparison to what we really think is out there. How did you discover this story? What made you go to the Navajo Nation and take photographs of radiation's health effects in the community? Well, I wish I could say it was a more researched approach to this story, but I had just finished my first year at college, and I was spending time at a different job out in New Mexico, and I was looking for a powerful story to tell that I could do in my days off because I wasn't particularly enjoying my job. And so I started looking around, and I found that there was a charity administering drinking water to people in this certain part of the reservation. It's called the St. Bonaventure Indian Mission in through New Mexico. And it was a bit of a drive, so I didn't really know what I was getting into. But I was reading, and I'm like, I'd never heard of people not having clean drinking water. Because where I'm from, I'm in the city, but we had friends out in the countryside. And if they don't, they're not connected to the municipal water lines, they're simply going to pay and dig a well. Here, that's not an option. For one thing, it's hard rock in many areas, so most could not afford to dig a well. And then even the wells that do pump and do run, they are contaminated. And this is for several reasons, the main reason being the uranium mining that took place to fund the Cold War effort. And so many of these areas are now hot spots, and the uranium is a heavy metal, leaches into the ground. It was brought out 
during the mining periods, near roadways, it's near near all these unreclaimed mine sites, and people are suffering from water insecurity, which is one of the world's most crippling problems. You really can't do anything if you're spending several times a week, or maybe even more than that, going into town and picking up water. And that's even with this charity giving out free drinking water from a well that reaches a depth that can get safe water out to the public. I met people who are using milk jugs, and they can only fill as many milk jugs as they have and can fill up their trunk, and so that's not enough water to live by. And so that's making a trip maybe three or four times a week. So those were some of the people hit hardest. I can't even imagine what it was like before this charity dug this well because you basically would have no option and you would drink the contaminated water. And you tell the story of people who, when the mines were opened, it was great because these were jobs for people. But the miners would come home to their families. They'd be covered with this dust. Their water was being contaminated. And they buried their own children. And your story, as I was explaining to you before we started the interview, your photographs are so intimate and beautiful, but your writing is also spectacular. And I think that the beauty of the work that you do and where it intersects with food and health is that you're telling the stories of real life problems that need to be fixed. But if we don't see them or know about the stories, then how do we know to fix them? And as is described in your article that you wrote, these people feel like they've been forgotten, and they largely have. And they describe themselves as being prisoners of war. Yeah, exactly. And that's reached a little bit deeper, spending more time returning to the same families. That's not stuff they talk about as openly, but certainly feel that here's our land, here's this small parcel of land that we've actually been given to live on. And the Navajo are one of the tribes in the U.S. that actually were given pretty much close to what their land was before. But it's this systematic disassembling of the resources that they had and disseminating it, and they're not the ones profiting. So even when these jobs were had plentifully in the you know 1950s, 60s, 70s, they were not benefiting in the same ways. And people knew that this was a dangerous metal to be around, and it's dangerous property to ore, and people described going into the mines and the white managers would not go in with them. If they did go in, they would have maybe a breathing apparatus or some more formal safety equipment. These mines were not even equipped with ventilation systems to just get the dust particles out of the air. And so that's how a lot of folks have the upper respiratory illnesses. So yeah, in those deeper conversations with people on the reservation, I've heard things like, we're out of sight, we're out of mind. They supplied this incredibly crucial metal at this huge point in American history. But as soon as it became clear what was happening here, yes, they get some compensation from the American government, but no amount of money is really going to make up for the fact that people are dying by the thousands. And as shown in some of these photographs, you know, this man had buried his two daughters of course, he's not going to get any compensation for that. The compensation is strictly for medical help for sick minors. So he's not going to get any compensation for the two daughters he buried, the woman, Elsie Mae Begay, holding the photo of her two sons. She's not going to receive any compensation for losing two sons to cancer at very early ages, 25 and 42. It's out of sight. It's out of mind. I didn't know about it. 
I certainly didn't know about it until I went. Even once I was there, it's been several trips, peeling back the layers and gaining more of an understanding. I'm not the first journalist to go there, but certainly we don't have enough coverage on this topic. Yeah. It's so interesting that you were able to gain the trust of this community because here you are, clearly you are an outsider, you're a foreigner, you come in, you start asking questions. What is your process for building trust? I think that is certainly the most integral part, most important part of what I do, no matter where it is. It could even be a neighbor in my own neighborhood in Kentucky, but building that kind of trust is just a certain amount of I guess just, just being quiet and listening and being curious and, and actually listening to answers and playing off the things people actually tell you. I think you can really tell when someone's genuinely interested. Yeah. And that's what I try to put off. I'm sure as an interviewer, you know that as well. But once you have people trying to tell you things, you know, it, it's sometimes like they tell you too much, which is obviously a good problem to have. But it's a process that I certainly was not the best at when I started this project three years ago now, but over time and over returning to the same people at times on the reservation, I would say that was the absolute best way, is that showing that I didn't come there and I just wanted to leave and never come back. I applied for grants. They were small student grants at first, and then a professional grant from Reuters to continue the work, but seeing the same family and returning the same family year after year the Gordys, Larry Gordy, they put me up at their house when I come back, and I was just there a couple months ago. And so it's time after time like that, absolutely the best way to gain trust. You don't always have that luxury, but that's probably how I did some of this work. Yeah. Well, all of your stories have that level of intimacy, and I agree with you. Being kind, listening, those are important skills. As you mentioned, having the luxury of being able to go back and revisit and show people that, yeah, you are genuinely interested and curious and wanting to improve someone's plight in life. I mean, I feel like most of my work is spent so much delving into scientific facts. And facts are great. We need them. We need to have the science behind, say, you know, why is uranium? You know, Why do we have a neuropathy in the Navajo Nation? How is that linked to uranium? It's important to understand the science. But we need art along with the science to elevate awareness and so that we can stop our negligent behaviors. Because I'm sure maybe some people did know about the harm, but I like to think that, you know, these were unintended consequences of something that was meant to be good, but uh uh-oh, we made a mistake and it wouldn't be our first one. But it's curious to me about what's happening with journalism itself and the ability to go back and keep on visiting people and getting more and more of the story. I feel like in journalism, we're really losing a lot of the reporters who have the ability to spend so much time delving into critical issues. You're young, you're looking at the future. What can we do for photojournalism and journalism itself to make it so that we do have the time to tell good heartfelt, true stories? I, th- I think that would be subscribing to the places you get your news from. So I know it can be frustrating when there's a paywall on a, on a website or for a newspaper, but I would say that would be the absolute biggest thing because most journalism, is it's not nonprofit or anything. It doesn't need a donation. It just needs support locally and nationally to be successful. 
So subscribing, every time you learn a new fact maybe or learn about something new that you didn't know about, maybe think about paying for that, paying for the, the work that was just done because it's not just the journalists themselves, but it's the organization behind them. In my case, I was just on my own and this was something I wanted to do and I spent my money from that summer job doing it to get the job started. So that was one thing. But as I go forward in this career, I know personally that I'm going to put a lot more value on finding a job where I can do long-form work like this than a job where I'll necessarily make much money. Not that there are great paying journalism jobs exactly, but I think it's a matter of finding those organizations and those coworkers that are willing to do this with you to where you're not the only person in a place that cares to do this kind of long-form work. And these stories are everywhere. Like the, A story like this might seem shocking, and just because something hasn't really been heard before, just because I didn't know that this happened before, doesn't mean there aren't stories like this, especially ones relating to environmental racism and economic divide, many of the issues I'm interested in, they're everywhere. And it takes an informed, empowered, local, journalistic force to make these stories more known. I think going forward, that's like my biggest fear is that I won't be able to find the jobs where I can do this kind of work, but I'll just keep looking. I won't stay at a place for long if I'm not able to actually have some time to tell stories like these. Right. And yeah. And I think that it's so important for those of us who weren't aware of this to know and that ultimately policymakers will become aware and hopefully change policies so that we really can see a positive outcome. But it starts with your work. So I want to thank you for that. We need to take one break because we're halfway. I need to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Mr. Gabriel Scarlett. He is the 73rd College Photographer of the Year. His work is one of advocacy. And thus far, he has examined social issues within the United States with special interest in stories of immigration, environmental racism, and economic divide. If you go to his website, which is gabrielscarlet.com, and that's scarlet with two T's, and I'll provide a link on the website, you can see many of his projects and understand why he was indeed awarded this prize. So are you aware of any policy outcomes resulting from this story that you did or this project on the Navajo Nation? No, not directly, but I, I have been involved with a group going forward. The angle I'm going to keep trying to work with is working in step with the Navajo Birth Cohort Study, which is a huge study, and this is just one section of it, just one cohort, and it is studying the effects of uranium and other heavy metal contaminants on mothers and their newborns on the reservation. And so working in line with them, I think is maybe one of the most direct ways I could help benefit this situation, letting them use photographs, working with them. That will be the best way to get this out. And they're doing really powerful work studying, like you said, about the science. We do need to know the science. We need to know the specifics behind the science for public policy changes to go into effect. A lot of that will include public health information being shared and being people being educated on maybe areas not to go by and certainly relating to the water not being drinking. That's a huge part. But the next main thing is for the Reuters article to come out, hopefully within the next year. I work with them through a grant, and now I'm in the process of doing a final edit of the work I've done so far 
And Reuters is a, an international wire service, and so that will allow the story to be picked up by many different organizations rather than what I had initially planned, which was just to pitch it to you know, one newspaper at a time and see if I could generate interest. But this is a possibility of it getting out to millions of viewers. So hopefully after that point, some reaction from the public can take place. Oh, yeah, I hope so. And I always love stories that have like, once I've been emotionally embroiled in the story, I love having action steps at the end. Like, so I'm really glad that you mentioned the charities that are working to improve the lives and to study the Navajo birth cohort study. So I'll provide a link to that as well. So if people want to learn more, they can. One of the other projects, of course, you have several projects that are great, but because we're focused on food and agriculture and we do have the time, let's talk about the immigration work that you've done. Now, you're at Western Kentucky University. How is it that you are able to travel to both the Navajo Nation and then the stories about immigration took you to California? How did that happen? That's just through the internships I've done. My one first internship was at a Boy Scout ranch after my freshman year. That's about all you can get as a freshman college student. So that was why I was in New Mexico. Still, it was a very long drive each way to tell the the story on the Navajo Reservation. Initially, it was about six hours each way. So that was most of my earnings from that summer was going into working on this. But the next two summers later, I was working at the LA Times on an internship. And so this story came about the story of uh, Jose Garcia And it came about from just a simple assignment at the end of the day. They asked me if I wanted to work a little overtime and go over and photograph this family whose grandfather had just been picked up and slotted for deportation. And so it was just going to be a quick picture of the family together. And I think it's quite easy to tell when something is a lot more than that. And that was one situation in which I had to let these people know who I was and then probably the worst chapter of their entire lives let them know that I was there, hopefully, to try to help. And I communicated that quickly and then spent the next several weeks on and off with them until Jose was ultimately, charges were dropped against him. So he had been in this country since he was a teenager, and he was picked up and put in detention. And meanwhile, his family is dependent on him. He's working three jobs. He's put into detention. And I think what was so remarkable about this story is that it shows the value of photojournalism and the power of the media to set the story straight and to make things right. And so if I'm recalling correctly, Jose was released, but it was sort of like quiet. And then they drove him around a while because they didn't want the media picking up and they just sort of dropped him off at a corner. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. I had visited Jose in jail in Orange County, which was quite a ways from his, where his family lives. And there was just another stumbling block thrown in my way, which was them basically saying at the jail level that even though my request to photograph Jose visiting with his family, which is certainly, it was a very powerful situation to be in, but they denied my request to bring a camera because they didn't want to highlight their contract with ICE at that time. And so they could simply, they're the ones in power, and so they could simply deny him the right of having his story shared. But they couldn't tell me not to come on the visit. And so I came when Natalie, his daughter, and Marley, his granddaughter, saw him in jail. And that was a very tough time for him, as well as for all three of them. 
and I got to meet him there briefly on a phone line, you know, speaking through the glass and let him know who I was and that I would be there if and when he was released. And when that day did come, he charges were dropped at the courthouse at Immigration Court downtown, and then they drove him back to his jail. They said he'd be released there. He wasn't released there. They said he'd be released at another facility. He wasn't released there. It ended up we were all in separate cars chasing back and forth on the highway from them changing the location of his release, I think three or four times before he was ultimately just dropped on a street corner. And I was the second car back after his son had embraced him. And so that scene plays out in one of the photographs and news broadcast was had pulled up at that point. And they were all interviewing. And it was a very, very emotional scene, especially for his daughter, who I had not seen have that kind of emotion, especially that powerfully up until that point. And it was a really, really sad, but a positive day. And the public attention and public outcry on Twitter, Facebook, in the newspapers, on the national, you know, CNN, national news, all contributed to the prosecution wanting his case to go away quietly. Yeah, interesting. I haven't seen a lot of photographs from the border, and I guess it's because I live so many miles from there. But I am very curious, and it's tragic, about mothers and children being separated. And I think that with your skill set, and of course, photojournalists all over the country, exposing these images, there would be more public outcry, or at least I'd like to think there would be, which again, would drive perhaps a policy change. And I'm wondering, Probably people aren't welcomed with their cameras at these places. No, no, and and it's a sad fact of photography relating to any aspect of immigration, and there's other circumstances as well, but where the powers that be, the folks who need to be held accountable, are the ones who also have the power over access. So in many of these situations, here I have a family who wants me to photograph them at this really tragic but very telling moment in their life, which would have been if Marley and Natalie you know, separated by a glass barrier, speaking to Jose on the other side, who's in a, a green immigration jumpsuit. And here's a family who wants me there. That's usually what you would think would be the hardest hurdle to get over to telling this story and bringing it to the public's attention. But, of course, you come across folks in the detention facility and in the detention business who just simply don't want to be connected to this broader national story. And so they're willing to neglect their inmates' rights to having a story told. And so it's really a big problem, especially with any other story on immigration. You can come across that problem. I have so many friends who've tried to do stories in jails or this or that, and they have subjects, they have people who want them there. Maybe there's a great program going on in the jail, but then it just takes one person in charge to just say no, and they don't have to come up with a reason. There's no federal mandate about this or about access to a journalist or anything. I actually did take one picture of a father at a different facility quite a ways outside of Los Angeles, and he had been separated from his son during the family separation period last year. And he spoke no English. We went out there with a, a reporter who spoke Spanish. And I was allowed about four minutes to photograph him. Just It was almost like a proof-of-life photo. It was almost like a picture from, from a hostage to show that they're still alive or something. It was really appalling. 
And it's not that you need to have a photo shoot in a jail or anything, but it was pretty dehumanizing for him to have 15 minutes of access to both me and the reporter. Yeah. To tell his story, you know, to, she was trying to help him with some things, and that was pretty hard to be a part of, but yeah. What is it that led you to this field? Well, I'm home actually right now, and I was just going through some stuff and saw the first pictures I ever took, which were at Niagara Falls when I was about 10 years old, I think. So I've been thinking on that quite a bit more lately. I'd always liked photography. Initially, I'd wanted to do adventure, rock climbing, skiing, photography, all those kinds of things. But I quickly fell in love with the work of National Geographic. So I'm very excited to to be working there soon. I think the pages of National Geographic and some of the really powerful storytelling, like we've talked about, where people are actually given time on an assignment, that is very rare today. Even in some of the biggest publications around the country, I almost never see a story published in there that took more than a couple days to shoot. And I think that's one of the most powerful parts about Geographic is that you're sent on an assignment for eight weeks or three weeks or whatever the case may be. I'm sure it's not as long as every photographer would always want, but there's a different kind of storytelling that can come out of the pages when photographers are given that kind of time. And the first story I fell in love with in high school was Aaron Huey's documentation of the Pine Ridge Reservation. Mm. And I had seen a TED Talk where he spoke about the work, and then I'd seen the actual magazine itself. And it, to this day, is one of my favorite pieces of journalism. And I think I never really forgot about that. And I'm not making work like that yet, but it is certainly one of the standards I hold and would like to go down that path. I think that if we are going to change cultural narratives so that we are kinder to each other and we have fairer policies and we have less people falling through the cracks, we need people with your skill set to make that happen. And I am extremely grateful for the work that you've done. What do you want to leave our listeners with? We just have a minute left. I think I would just tell people that there is so much going on in this country And there's so much going on beyond what you see on cable news. And it's not that those issues do not matter. It's just that often, if you go beyond talking points on an issue and you actually seek out, you're going to have to seek out a lot of this work because this is not the kind of work that gets shared, goes viral on Facebook or Twitter. This is stuff that you're going to actually have to seek out, good journalism like this. But here you're going to actually see the real story. And I've seen personally the real face of environmental racism and immigration and so many of these other issues alive and well in my country. And through that, I feel like I've been given a very fortunate opportunity to learn and further my political understanding, but hopefully that's what my pictures can do for other people. And I'm not alone. There are many great journalists out there. I would just tell people, seek out this kind of work and inform yourself beyond what you just see in the short headlines on TV and the things that are easy to talk about. These are complicated issues, multifaceted in the solutions that are needed. And I would just honestly beg people to, to seek out the answers themselves. Thank you for being my guest. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank Mr. Gabriel Scarlett. 
the 73rd College Photographer of the Year, recognized at the Picture of the Year Awards administered by the University of Missouri School of Journalism. Follow this gentleman's work. It's fantastic. www.gabrielscarlet.com, and I'll have a link to that. Thank you so much for your work, for exposing the truth, and for being my guest. Thank you so much, Melinda. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you.